Hi, everyone. It's Jen Newell. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Nick Johnson to discuss a very important topic, how to overcome executive loneliness. Nick Johnson is the co-founder and managing director of one of Asia's premier networking organizations, the Executives Global Network, or EGN for short, Singapore a confidential peer group network providing more than 600 senior executives and business owners a safe haven to share their challenges, receive support, and learn from one another. Nick's passion for mental health awareness paved the way for Nick to author his first number one international best-selling book published in April 2021, Executive Loneliness, The Five Pathways to Overcoming Isolation, Stress, Anxiety, and Depression in the Modern Business World. And today, Nick and I will be talking about how you can overcome executive loneliness. Hi, everyone. It's Jen Wall, And today, I'm sitting down with Nick Johnson to talk about an extremely, or what I would argue, an extremely important topic. We are going to be talking about on the podcast today, executive loneliness, which is something that many of you might feel like you've experienced, or maybe as a leader, you just feel like you don't really have the support or the confidence. And so today we have Nick Johnson to talk all about his book, Executive Loneliness, how we can address it, how we can identify it, and then what we can do to reduce that executive loneliness, to help people feel included. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, The Leadership Habit today. We are so happy to have you. And you are joining us from another portion of the world. Nick, where are you joining us from? Hey, good morning, Jen. I'm dialing in here from Singapore. It's 7 a.m. in the morning. The sun is about to go up. So yeah, it's fantastic to be with you. And thank you so much for raising this important conversation today. Oh my gosh, thank you for writing a book on it. I think, you know, I mean, I actually, before we dive into it, because I know I'm going to go so many different ways, but Nick, how, what did your journey look like? How did you get to today? So I was born in Sweden and then I actually went to study in Australia at university. And after that, I worked uh, almost 20 years in senior management positions in Asia. And through that, I realized when I was a senior executive at the top, I could feel many times it was quite lonely in the decisions. And I made some decisions by myself, big decisions that when I'm looking back at them, they were perhaps not the best decisions. So when I realized this, and I went through some very challenging times myself. And when I came through them, looking back at this situation, I realized that I wish I had some support when I was there uh, at the top of these organizations making the decisions. So that's when I decided that I need to do something here. And finally, to add to this, Jen, a friend, a colleague of mine, another senior executive died of suicide during this time. And that's when I decided to make it my mission to really go out here and destroy the stigma we have surrounding mental health. Yes, let's destroy it. And hopefully this episode will be another way that we're going to help people understand that, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to experience mental health challenges. You are not alone. And I'm just so happy, you know, that you're taking, obviously that story of losing someone so near to you is tragic. And how many lives could be saved just by having the conversation? Out of curiosity, what inspired you to write your book on executive loneliness? So Jen, I've started to dig into this topic. And uh, the first thing I did was to make a survey. And I'm fortunate that I'm now the managing director and co-founder of the biggest peer network in Asia for senior executives. So I sent out an anonymous survey to this network and asking them basically how they felt about stress, anxiety, and 
loneliness in work. And I was quite shocked with the findings. And they were also aligned with the global statistics that 30% of executives are lonely. So if 30% are feeling lonely and isolated, then I wanted to dig deeper. So I then started to interview them also one-on-one. For every interview I had, I was more and more shocked as I uncovered what was basically beneath there. And so it's actually through these surveys and the interviews which formed the foundation for this book. Wow, 30%. That's a, I think that's a high statistic of just feeling, you know, maybe like you're on an island. And I know that I struggle if I ever feel, you know, alone. I know my personality style lends it to wanting to connect and collaborate with others. But I can only imagine because you have at that top level of executive leaders, you likely have some of that, you know, the stress, the pressures of performing at that level in an organization, but then feeling I'm alone and I have to do it all right. Or I'm sure you talked about making decisions. I have to make the right decision, but how do I know? Why do you think it's important that we address this topic? Well, it is certainly during these times also with the pandemic, because the 30% I mentioned was before the pandemic. And I redid the survey with the same audience now also during the pandemic. And in December 2020, the number had doubled to 60%. So here we also see, you know, that the loneliness for senior executives have doubled uh, since uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And that was also the perfect timing for me to launch the book last year, to really have this as a conversation starter, because... This is what the reality is. The the executives are just lonely in the decisions. And they also definitely don't want to talk to anyone about it. And uh, uh, the the other research I found was that 84% of them would not feel comfortable to share about the loneliness. They wouldn't express it to someone in the organization, again, due to the stigma. So what do you think it would take? Or I guess that stigma, let's go into that a little bit more. Why do we think that people just avoid talking about it or don't bring it up? Is it all just the stigma? Or I guess, what is the stigma telling them that makes them reluctant to want to talk about it? Well, especially here, if you think about that, I'm based in Asia, Singapore, and it's the regional hub, basically. So if you have been appointed as a regional director for big uh, international firms, and you are running perhaps 20 different countries in Asia, you are the one who's supposed to be able to handle all the pressures, handle all the all the the work and the different challenges in the region, you're trusted and paid to do that job. So if you're coming back then to telling your head office uh, back in the US, for example, about your problems, they don't want to hear about it. They don't, you're there to do the job. And that is how many of them feel scared and they don't want to share about it and so on. And just to add on to this, Jen, the the survey findings also found that 75% of them also do not seek any help about it. That means that 84% then are not talking about it in the company, 75% are not even going to ask for professional help. Uh, They won't go and see a psychologist or a doctor because, again, they are scared perhaps that someone find out. Which is, that part makes me, you know, just unbelievably sad to know that there are people you know, I don't, it doesn't matter what their title is to know that someone is struggling and might be experiencing these mental health signs or symptoms, but yet they're not asking for help. And I think that makes sense because there still are a lot of organizations that, or firms that maybe still think that mental health should be something that's dealt with outside of work and that 
work somehow doesn't have anything to do with it. I, I don't know why that has come to me or why that ever was somewhat of a expectation that you didn't have mental health at work. I don't know. What do you see? Do you feel like it's more of a, is it an individual or is it really that, that organization not creating the psychological safety or not breaking down that taboo of what mental health looks like? Do you think it's been the individual and how they were raised that they weren't supposed to talk about that? Yes, Jen, it is very much how we raised. It's always been that it's sort of this stigma and the taboo topic to talk about. And we've carried this with us. And then as we want to protect ourselves in our career, we don't want perhaps that other colleagues should gossip or find out about it. So we are trying to protect it and we're keeping it inside us. Because also perhaps we don't want to burden people around us. But there's some light here as well, Jen, with the pandemic. And that is that while a lot of the counseling and therapy was that you had to go visit a physical location before. The fact that we are on Zoom now, a lot of these sessions can happen anonymously. You can lock yourself in your office during the lunch break and have a one-on-one session with a therapist. And that is actually what I've included in my book also on executive loneliness. Uh, The last part of the book, I have a lot of resources, contacts and hotlines, and it's so much support available uh, and the most of it is actually free support groups and so on that you can join anonymously to get this help. So this is at least a, a positive move, Jen. Yes, I think you bring up a great point that the pandemic really maybe opened the doors to make therapy accessible in maybe a more confidential setting. They could do it and it could fit into the schedule a little bit easier. I know I personally have seen my therapist over a Zoom call. I don't think it was actually Zoom. It was a different video conferencing software, but I loved it because then I could still see my therapist, talk about my challenges, and hey, I didn't have to deal with the traffic on the way to get there. You know, it's convenient, but I appreciated that luxury. You know, Nick, how do you help people understand? Because I think there's that other piece where maybe people are a little oblivious, or maybe they just aren't sure how to recognize it. So what are some signs that you might be experiencing workplace loneliness? Well, Jen, you're you're absolutely right. Many people will also deny it, uh, even to themselves, perhaps. It's very hard uh, to know who's suffering. And in my book, I call it a smiling depression, because it's so true. If you're a successful business person, you're hiding behind that smile, that facade. But it's also true, Jen, if you think about all the celebrities, and we see so many these days stepping forward, though, to say that they actually were suffering or suffering. So in that sense, it's very hard to find out who's actually going through some challenges. But there are a few things to look for. One is definitely if they are isolating themselves, if they're cutting themselves off the groups, if they're not showing up when they are supposed to, that's one warning sign. If you arrange, for example, a coffee morning with the ladies and the, the same person don't show up a few times, that's one a warning sign that we see. Others can be that the person is uh, suddenly losing or gaining a lot of weight, uh, perhaps losing interest in hobbies. If they used to cook, uh, if your husband used to cook every Tuesday night for 20 years, suddenly he stops this, then something is going on. Or perhaps if you used to play guitar for many years, every day there was your habit that you did that for half an hour, you stop this. Or a mother perhaps who's losing interest in, in parenting for her baby, uh, someone who you see pick up some bad habits, addictions. We have seen uh, gambling, we have seen uh, alcohol, drugs, uh, addiction and habits all spiking during the pandemic. So if you see some of your friends or loved ones who are perhaps starting to uh, drink too frequently, that's something to look for. Um, 
And the last one is, yeah, if the anger and temperament obviously is linked to all of this. So if you see someone who's losing the temper too frequently, uh, those are all signs to see if you can try to help. Yeah, and I can relate to some of those. I can think about the peak, maybe peak stress times throughout my career or with different positions where I definitely can relate to the isolating. And I think from my experience, isolating, if I've ever felt excluded, or not valued, or not enough, right? That could be a result of the culture, feedback, it doesn't matter. Then I know, even though I'm a social person, my natural tendency is to want to avoid, to not be seen, to just be on my own, to do my job, you know, come in, leave, and hopefully do it all unscathed, which initially that isolation for me, I think felt, um, it felt like it was the right thing to do. It felt like I was trying to help myself, but Every time I did that, I would actually just be making myself feel worse because I, I want to connect with others. And I don't know if any of our listeners can relate with that, of feeling like we do it initially out of this beautiful place of self-protection, but then we don't recognize that we're actually committing more self-harm that could be making it worse. Curious your take on that. Yes, it's very interesting, Jen, and indeed, and, and when I went through my challenges myself a few years ago, I realized that I had look, uh, lost the connection within myself. And if you cannot feel connected with yourself and well and happy with yourself, how can you put, possibly connect and feel great with another person? It's just impossible. So that means that the, you can actually feel lonely in the middle of the room of your family and friends because you lost it inside you. So that explains exactly what you just mentioned there, Jen, that you even if you were with your friends and so on, you didn't feel connected at that moment. So therefore, we have to start the journey of recovery internally. And that once we have recovered internally, then we can add on the external relationship. So it's a journey we walk through. And I take it actually in my book, I, I outline it as five different steps. It's like a pathway to follow and it starts within before you can go external. Oh my gosh, let's go, let's go into that. I would love to talk about how do you recover? And I mean, I think the other important piece that you had mentioned or implied is that wherever you are right now, if you're reflecting on this and you're maybe identifying yourself as experiencing this or feeling like you're having some symptoms of mental health, know that you're not alone and that this doesn't determine who you are, you know, for the rest of your life. I think that's a piece that I want to go into how do, can you overcome it? But there's so many people, or I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you feel a tremendous amount of shame or uh, just that feeling of what is wrong with me for having these feelings, that self-judgment that comes in so strong. And I think in how I experience depression and anxiety is, again, I'm just piling on. Them. I might have depression and anxiety, which I do, but then I feel a tremendous amount of shame or I am you know, fundamentally flawed or something because I have it. And I love that you talked about kind of that, I forget how you phrased it, the smiling executive, because I'm often one of the people that they might think, oh my gosh, but she's happy and she laughs and she smiles. Hey, that just means that I may not be sharing it. And I am pretty, you know, I, I have my outlets that I do talk about that, but I'm often one person that people think she's too happy to be depressed. She's too happy to have and that's, you know, you can't just assume that because someone's putting on that happy disposition that they're never going to experience something like that. I don't know if you see that where people are just like, I couldn't possibly be that. No way. 
Yes, that's absolutely true, Jenna. Yeah, I call it the smiling depression in my book. And uh, it's definitely true. And uh, especially if you look at uh, famous people, successful people, they are trained and they can really hold it. You can uh, never, ever see anything. And uh, that's always the first sad thing when we lose someone. We, everyone would first say, oh, we had no idea that he was so happy. He looked so great and uh, and so on. That's always the same story. And it's just so sad. Yes. So it's very true, Jen. It's impossible to see uh, who's actually smile, uh, smiling and then suffering behind that. Oh my gosh. And so let's talk about how do you overcome it? How do you begin if you're seeing yourself in this story or maybe noticing some ways that you're you know, pulling yourself or moving and isolating, or if you're picking up different habits or losing interest, how do you start to overcome it? Where, what's that starting point look like? So that's exactly what I laid out then in my book and I, through my interviews and the surveys and talking with executives, I also interviewed a lot of executives who gone through it themselves. And since I also went through my own recovery, uh, but the first step there, if I talk you briefly through the five, uh, five steps, the first step is taking stock. It is about writing down what's going on in your life. Do you have uh, health issues? Like in my case, I, for example, had picked up too much alcohol. I gained weight from that. My blood uh, results was not good. So I had to go and see a a doctor later on. So the first step, taking stock. The second then is asking for help. I went to a doctor. So if you perhaps have taken stock that you have some anxiety attacks and so on, then it is to talk to a therapist. It is then asking for help. Uh, So then... Uh, The third step is getting healthy. So really removing the illnesses or whatever you have in your body uh, so that you are well internally. And then the fourth step is nurturing healthy relationships. So that's about once you're healed, then on the third step internally, only on the fourth step, you can go externally to repair the relationships. Perhaps you have avoided people. Perhaps you have avoided your friends. Uh, Perhaps also because uh, you've not been well, you might have, said something bad to some friends maybe you made some enemies it's time to repair those relationships uh, so that you can feel better about yourself and then the final step i say is about finding your purpose in life what is it that excites you Um, and from there on uh, things things really follow i want to go back to step one you know taking stock of where you are in the moment because i think that there's the piece around self-awareness where I think people still may not recognize that they're showing up in this way. And so how do you teach that person that's been taught to, you know, not pay attention to your emotions, to keep those out of the workplace? How do you help them recognize? I'm curious if you have any tips to help them understand the feelings that they're having, even though they've been told maybe their whole life that they shouldn't have those feelings. Yeah, so Jen, I uh, had the pleasure of going through an anonymous 12-step program and taking stock was a big part of that. Uh, there, it was called a moral inventory. And <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, maybe we can redo that one. Yes, yes. Just get some water and we can redo that one. Okay. Okay, so the first step then taking stock. In my case, I had the pleasure of going through a 12-step recovery program, an anonymous program where we were actually guided to do this. And there we were given an empty spreadsheet in Excel and we were asked to write down everything. And this was then called a moral inventory. So we had to spend a, a few weeks really writing everything we could think about uh, and, and then 
we would talk that through with someone who'd gone through it before and they would be guiding us. I love that. And maybe even taking stock of what are the things that are keeping you up at night, the things that, you know, won't allow you to fall asleep or what your triggers are throughout the day. And why are you triggered? What's coming up for you? I think that's the piece that people forget to bridge the gap. They might understand that they're triggered or something happened and they reacted in a certain way, but then they don't realize that they can control the trigger. I think going through and writing all of those down is a fantastic way to just start to be curious with yourself. And I know that you're not saying this, so I, and I want to reinforce it. You're not saying to write it all down, to judge yourself. So when you're starting to do this, it's not so you can find this piece of paper and say, wow, really getting things wrong in life. No, it's to understand what could be at the undercurrent, what could be the things that are keeping you stuck or, you know, making it challenging. It's not to say, you know, to come to a conclusion that in some way you're not enough. It's to say, to come to the conclusion, maybe this is an opportunity to do something about this. Absolutely. And then uh, later on in, in the step four there to repair relationships, uh, you're actually coming back to that list and, and, and making amends for relationships that you had perhaps broken. And uh, what I was surprised about in, in that first step when I, I, I wrote down this inventory was that I was asked to go back to my childhood to really go deep inside myself. It might be things that, you know, you uncover then that happened a long time ago. And it was one particular incident uh, with my sister I wrote down. And I can remember that happening a few years ago. And it, it was just an incident when we were at, at the dining table. And I, my son was quite young at the time. And my sister gave him a Coca-Cola. And he had never had a soda in his whole life. And I remember becoming quite upset. And I stormed off the table. And I just left. I didn't say anything. And that incident had stayed with me for many years. And I felt so bad about it that I never apologized over it. So I went back to my sister and I made amends and apologized for that uh, uh, just recently, actually. And I was so surprised when I mentioned it to her that she couldn't even remember the incident. She had forgotten all about it. For her, it was nothing. For me, I walked around carrying this burden within my heart for a few years, avoiding my sister a little bit. I felt that we were not so close and it was all in my mind. So often made that amend uh, our relationship flourished again. Oh, I, that is a really great example of, you know, the importance of, I guess, I think there's that piece of fact checking. I know one of the things that I'm sure I see with clients, I know I'm sure you do too, is that it can feel so true to us because it's inside of our brain. It's the story that we're writing and reinforcing every day that it becomes the difference between true and the truth. And your true was that your sister was upset with you. And I'm sure so many people can relate to those moments where we might have had an overreaction. We didn't show up as the person that we want. And we just feel that guilt and shame or frustration with ourselves. But then to think, hey, did I actually check this? Did I confirm whether or not this, this story is real? Um, and then going there and talking to your sister and finding that she didn't, that was not a moment in her way or in her life in the same way that it was in yours. She wasn't up at night thinking about that. What a beautiful gift. How did that, I guess, what type of release did you have when you found out from your sister that she wasn't, you know, that wasn't something that she was holding on to? What did that do for you by finally going in and checking that out? Oh, it makes you sleep much better at night, Jen. And, and just as these, you know, you tick the boxes. And I went through about 30, 40 of these instances. It might have been also another story, you know, where 
I was laid off from a job for whatever reason and I had resentments against my previous boss and I later on had to go back to him now and have another cup of coffee and discuss this, you know, what happened and to just clear the situation. And for every single case like that, something just lifted from my shoulders and I felt lighter, I felt better. And again, yeah, I slept better at night. So it, it doesn't take much. It takes about you know, just looking back at that uh, at that inventory and then later on going over them one by one and ticking the boxes. But I want to say one thing. I was blessed that I had someone who'd done it before who took me through this. But Jen, this is what all the coaches are there for as well. There's so many people who can help us if, if we don't know how to do this. And in my book, I also have some tips and tricks how you can do it. Yeah, I want to go into talking about the resources that you have Crosscom is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crestcom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crestcom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crestcom.com. What was step two? So taking stock, where, where do we land that on step two? Because I want to dive into that a little bit more in terms of how you can go through it. And I had to come back to taking stock because I think that's the one that people still may not realize. Yes. So step two is asking for help. So in my case, then I, I definitely need to see a doctor. Uh, because I, I, my, I was not healthy. I had not eaten well. I, I stopped exercise. I gained a lot of weight. And uh, yeah, I was consuming too much alcohol. And I was shy about it. But here, seeing the doctor, I had to be honest because it was clear on the blood results. So actually... <laughs> well, Couldn't I, get ahead I, of that one. The doctor knew something wasn't right. <laughs> so then I, I needed to seek help also for my alcohol problem. So I went to see also a support group who helped me with alcohol addiction that I had picked up during this time. And uh, through that, I get a lot of confidence and I started to address other areas in, in my life. Uh, I had, of course, then uh, some issues, uh, as I mentioned, uh, with relationships. And there I needed also some professional help. I had gone through a divorce during this time and my relationship with my ex-wife was not the best. My son lived with her. So I also need to see a family therapist and we worked through everything and I repaired also all those relationships and we have a very, very good contact and good relationships today. That's a, I really appreciate you sharing, not only being vulnerable and sharing the challenges or obstacles that you had went through, but also, you know, showing what it can look like on the other side when we actually, instead of maybe just worrying about it or stressing about it, when we actually maybe, would it be taking responsibility for it and saying, you know, asking for help? That's what you're saying is, you know, recognize it. Or one of my favorite quotes is you have to own it to control it. If you don't own it, then you don't get to do anything with it. Then it's going to keep controlling you. And once you can own that and ask for help, but again, 
do you think, why do you think people don't ask for help? I know this could go into, you know, the stigma with it, but why else don't we ask for help? Because we talked about a few of those instances, but I would love to talk a little bit more about this because I think it is a big area where people get stuck. Yeah, they don't even know what they should ask for help for. Because if you didn't do step one, if you didn't do that inventory, you don't know what you have. It's like, imagine if you're running a, a, a store, but you don't know what you have in stock. How can you even sell something, right? So it's here that in order to ask for help, you have to have it on this piece of paper and really analyze it and then go list by it. Go one by one and asking for help and sorting every single step. Uh, st- step out and don't skip anything. You have to be absolutely brutal with yourself and be honest with yourself and saying to yourself, time to stop this bullshit and, and just, you know, really address it one by one. And as I said, not everything has to cost money because I know a lot of listeners may think, oh, that's too expensive. But there are so many anonymous uh, charity organizations addressing these issues. If it's overeating, if it is smoking, whatever it is, there's so many networks who are there to help you. And go to those networks and and ask for help. But the challenge, I think, and here is the core issue, is that people are just scared and to ask for help. So we need to practice that muscle. And that's what I did by seeing the doctor, then the anonymous group for the alcohol issue. And that gave me the confidence then to address my relationship with my ex-wife, with my son. And from there, I didn't stop. I just continued to address everything I had on the list and uh, and just feeling better about it. I think that's, you know, asking for help. It's, I think, you know, again, people don't ask for it. They feel like there's some type of judgment or They've created that story and it's gotten worse and worse. And I feel for me, I initially, I think when I suffered in silence, that's when I tried to repress or I would just be driving home from work and I'd be crying or feeling that I would, I would try to hide it. And then I feel like it would be worse. Like I would almost be that much more um, reactive. I would kind of be that volcano. So then, you know, when you got to that next layer and I actually couldn't keep it in anymore, I would explode. But then every time I exploded, I felt better. And I think my goal with my mental health is now starting to say and give myself that, you know, permission. I can ask for help. I can talk about my emotions. I can talk about being triggered by something. I deserve to have a space to have and hold my emotions. And now that I've given myself that, I think it's easier for me to talk about other things because I don't paint them in the way that I used to as something that makes me flawed, wrong, less than their feelings that I'm having in a moment in time. Some of them might, you know, go back to my childhood or different traumas and experiences, but I now try, I try so hard to address things in the moment because I know that if I don't, then it obviously will be the volcano, but then every single time I address them, things just feel better or things get resolved in a different way, or there's a different level of understanding and curiosity that I can have for those that I'm interacting with. I don't know. I mean, I feel like you also get forgiveness then when you can let things go and, you know, not holding that resentment, which yeah, going back to the relationships, the avoiding was step four, right? Uh, but thinking, yes. how can we go back and make amends? How can we think about that? And you likely have hurt someone in your life or not shown up in an ideal way. Again, we're perfectly imperfect. I think, what do you think that, that, or I guess, how do you notice and do you notice this from you, where you sit in the executives you, you oversee? Is there a strong notion of that perfectionism of I have to be 
everything to everyone. I have to do it all right, you know, right now. And then I'm not going to admit a mistake because then it means I'm not perfect. So then that means I'm not going to address and try to nurture and, you know, maintain that relationship with someone. I don't know. Do you see perfectionism in your side of the, like in the interactions in the or individuals that you work with? Yes, certainly, Jen. Or and, like a U.S.-centered like viewpoint. I have no idea. I, I, this is why I love to ask these questions. Yes, no, certainly, Jen. No, this is indeed a global thing, and perhaps it's even a, a bigger thing in in Asia. Imagine if you are an expat coming from the U.S., you're living and working in Asia. Perhaps uh, you stay a little bit in your expat bubble. You don't integrate exactly with the locals, perhaps due to language, culture differences and so on. So there's a much bigger distance already between you and the colleagues in your office. You might have less understandings for each other. So therefore, there would be more conflict, more misunderstandings and even more challenging as well in the relationships. And there would be times when you perhaps are too busy and you, you're laying off people, but you might not do it in the right way. And you're probably hurting a lot of people along the way. And if you don't do that in the nice or in, in the correct way, then uh, it will come and, and haunt you later on and people will feel bad about it. I, and I remember when I was laid off from one job, uh, uh, I was crying, but also was my boss was crying. And that's perhaps is the, is how things are, right? And we just need to try to do it in, in, in a less harmful way for the other party. But we have to remember that if we don't do it in, a, in the best way, then we're, we're only going to hurt ourselves because we are human beings after all, right? Yes. And why do we forget that sometimes that everyone is doing their best, that we all have challenges, that we all have feelings? I mean, we're humans. I think it's so interesting in the era of leadership that we forget to give ourselves grace for being a human being. Uh, that is someone that is going to do their best, but ultimately won't always make the best choices, might not make the, or set the right communication that's the reality of life. I, you know, we don't get to get away from that or escape that. But I know we're going to get into our, like, before we get into a final question, I want to kind of go back to step five, purpose. How is purpose important to being able to managing executive loneliness to helping that connection? Why is a purpose or having one a significant part of that? Well, I think that uh, when you are a senior executive or a business owner and you're running something, many senior executives have a very big ego and many people are used to be the one to tell everyone what to do. And I think it, this is one of the challenges when we're talking about this topic, because it's very hard for a senior executive to admit their mistakes and they believe that they run the show to the point where perhaps they, they're not grounded enough. And that's what we see many times uh, that, you know, they, they are perhaps too bossy and uh, not, not uh, uh, open for suggestions and so on. And therefore, you know, it, it's very hard for them to admit any failures they have or any challenges they have. So when it comes to purpose, I believe it's important to, uh, to imagine that you are not the most powerful person in the world. You're not the one running the show uh, that you have to believe to. And what I'm coming at there is a power greater than yourself. Are you the center of the universe? Then you ought to get a lot of trouble for it. That is my five <laughs> cents on purpose. No, you have to know that's your grounding. That's your, I guess, your compass of understanding how to show up and I don't know if we can put something in there about within your purpose, also allow yourself to be imperfect because yeah, you're not, 
you know, rewriting that definition of what it means to be a success, a successful executive or leader. It doesn't mean doing 100% of the things right 100% of the time. It means being curious, leading with empathy, continuing to learn and grow. There's so many more things that that can mean. So let's bring it back to what you can do maybe if you're noticing someone in your organization that's going through maybe symptoms of mental health. How do you support others? How, how can I as a leader, how can you as a leader, how can we support one another to address and address these mental health challenges? Well, the challenge is, Jen, if you don't have a relationship with this person built up by now and you see someone who's suffering, they're most likely not going to share anything with you. So it's very important to be proactive here and, and break down these walls and the barriers beforehand to really build warm relationships. And it all starts by you being vulnerable by yourself. And what I've seen in organization is it has to start from the top. If you as a leader of an organization is not vulnerable with your teams, you cannot expect them to be vulnerable with you. And I, I, if I may just mention a story, Jen, from a book. Uh, in the book, I interviewed a, a, a managing director, a lady for a big bank, a big international bank. And she had worked her way up to the top in, in this male-dominated industry, and elbowing herself, working extremely hard. And basically, to quote herself, she said, I was a bitch. She pushed people away, but she pleased the bosses. She got the pay rises. And what she was living on the paper and what people saw was uh, the dream. She would have a driver. She had a nanny, uh, schools in pri- uh, the kid- children in private school and everything else. She lived in a beautiful apartment and everyone just uh, adoring the life she had. But inside, she felt lonely and she felt isolated. Then when she had an accident, she had to have a surgery on her face. She lost her confidence completely. And after that, started to push people away further. So her team was pushed away further. Her husband at home was uh, pushed away. And it went so far that she actually started to plan her own suicide. Uh, So when I interviewed her for the book, the first time she just opened up a little bit and she didn't disclose everything. But then a week later, she called me and we met for another coffee when she told me this. And I then managed to encourage her to to see a therapist. And she opened up to the therapist about this. They then discussed with the husband. They sorted out these issues. And uh, when the book came out and she was anonymous in the book, she, she bought a copy of the book and shared with her team members asked them to read it and then they had an open uh, open uh, meeting and discussed it and she said by the way that article there the woman in the bank that's me and they were all completely shocked so that was basically the the opening to this and after this they've had the open door policy her boss even came in and shared with her also that he went through challenges so this is my point again you have to be open you have to discuss things because when you break down that stigma and you have a warm, open environment, then everyone can talk about everything. Yes, 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 yes. When you talk about it, then it gives people permission to also have those feelings, to also be triggered or have a life that's happening outside of work. It's so interesting. Rarely, if ever, have I ever observed a situation where someone was vulnerable and sharing a piece of themselves to be met with you know, that judgment or, oh my gosh, that's so, you know, I feel like more often than not, when someone does reveal that, then you do, you empathize. I think that teaches you that we're humans. You can understand to be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle and that we all have 
you know, information about others, but we're also missing a lot of information or that bit, that vantage point into what they're going through. I love that story of the executive because, yeah, we paint a lot of stories about how everyone else has it better. And that's simply not true. It's just that we may not talk about it. But when you can start that conversation and, and please do not, this is what I cannot handle, Nick, is when this is going to be something that we're talking about because we feel like we should do it. Don't pretend to talk about mental health. Do not pretend to talk about it because it's something that you might be hearing or learning more about. You have to actually have a point of view. And also, I don't notice, I don't know if you ever see this, but sometimes in a room, I might have someone say, I've never met with that stuff. And the second that you say that, you're also triggering to people that there's something wrong with them. So be mindful. Maybe if you can't relate to the same extent, understand that everyone's journey is their own. And that just because they're going through something different doesn't mean there's something fundamentally wrong or that you're winning at life because you're not going through that. I don't know. Those are probably two of my public service announcements is to make sure that you're not just doing this because you want to be an attractive company to work for. You want to actually do it. And then two, that don't sit here and pretend, oh, I've never had that before because then you're only going to further isolate yourself or those from, I guess, each other, other colleagues. I don't know. Do you see that in the judgment land of people? Like, do you ever notice that? I feel like there's always one person that's like, I've never went through that before. And I think it's a lie. I don't believe them when they say that. I just think that they don't want to know because they're trying to keep that illusion of perfection. I'm curious, do you see that? Yes, Jen. I, we also had uh, this conversation in some of our sessions at work uh, with, the, with the members in the, the senior executives. And yeah, you'll always get a few, you know, uh, great topic, but it's not so interesting for me or it's not relevant for me. So yeah, it, it's very much that <laughs> denial. And, 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 you know, and the way I see it, then, and I come back to them and say, well, that's great that you are, you are feeling so grounded and connected, but what about those around you? Don't you have, you know, your team? What about your family and friends? I think you should join this conversation anyway, because there might be someone around you who you can help. And that's the way to get people into this conversation as well, because then how can you, they turn around and say, no, I don't care about my team. I don't care about my friends. I don't care about my family. So no, thank you. That's a great, that's a great idea how to approach it, because yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the language that they use. Like, oh, this is nice, but not for me. <laughs> I, I just laugh because I, I just think if we're complex. We all have stuff. Our brain is firing out all these thoughts. We've lived a life. We will have some of these things. Nick, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I know there's so many things that I wish I could even go into as it relates to this topic, and maybe we bring you back and we talk more about how this relates back to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but really creating that sense of belonging at work and why this is so important today. But I know that we don't have time for that. But Nick, how can people get in touch with you? Where can they well, book or how can they how can they connect with you outside of this podcast? Because you need to talk to Nick. Nick is opening up the doors to very important conversations that need to be had. And no longer should we lose people to suicide or other challenges as they relate back to mental health. We want to offer support to people. So how how can they get in touch with you? Well, uh, the easiest way is to look me up on LinkedIn. My name is Nick Johnson and it's spelled N-I-C-K-J-O-N-S-S-O-N. So they can follow me on uh, LinkedIn. I share a lot of my uh, articles and stories around the topic there. And otherwise, if someone is interested in, in the book, they can go to Amazon uh, or Audible. It's on uh, all these platforms or so Apple Books also and just look up Executive Loneliness. 
Yes. Thank you so much for writing this book. And thank you for joining us to have this very, very important conversation. And thank you so much, Jen, for inviting me and for covering it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I truly hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Nick on this very important topic. If you want to know more, well, the first thing is to think about something that's on your mind, something that's keeping you awake at night. Write it down and think about who you can share this problem with. Maybe this is a potential opportunity to connect with Nick. You can find additional information about Nick by going to executivelonelinessbook.com. There you can purchase his book and you can also connect with him on LinkedIn. And you can find his LinkedIn connection in the show notes. Until next time.